passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, the story of, of Seth actually starts at the very beginning of the Bible when God creates the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, we actually see God creates humanity, the crown jewel of his creation. Now notice, as we're going to look in, in Genesis chapter 1, notice these two things from Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. First, you'll see that God creates humanity with a unique identity, and also that he creates humanity with a unique purpose. So look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These three verses reveal to us why humanity is the culmination, the crown jewel of God's creation. Unlike everything else in God's creation, humanity is created in God's image. And as those who are created in his image, there is an inherent worth in every person you come into contact with. No matter how poorly or well they reflect their creator, every single person that you interact with reflects their creator in some way. That's true of every single person that you have ever met, who has ever lived, who ever will live. They were created with a unique identity. And that identity intrinsic within every person is that we are created as billboards to point other people to our creator. So that's the unique identity that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It's found at the beginning of, of, chapter, or of verse 26. But that's not all that we see here. Not only does God create humanity with a unique identity created in his image, we also see that God creates humanity with a specific task or a specific purpose. We see that humanity is created to have dominion over the rest of creation. So to put it another way, God, the high king of creation, plans to exercise his rule over his creation alongside and through humanity. Now we see the specifics of what this dominion looks like when we get to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we have a specific command to Adam on what this dominion looks like. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden for what purpose? To work it and keep it. So in God's original plan, humanity is placed in the garden of Eden, this place where God himself dwells. That's clear from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They're placed there as caretakers and rulers over creation. 
And over the course of time, God intends for his rule centered in the garden to spread over the entire earth. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, where Adam and Eve are called to fill the earth. And that is the original calling of humanity. It's an impossibly high, impossibly beautiful calling that God has given to humanity from the very beginning to rule alongside him, both men and women, to rule over his creation as a part of his creation. And can you imagine spurning a gift like that? That that is the original purpose of you and me. And you look at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, you see that that's God's purpose still. Revelation chapter 22 tells us that those who are in the new creation will rule alongside God forever and ever. Can you imagine spurning that gift and yet we look at the story of the Bible or we just know from our own experience that's exactly what happens If Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell us about this unimaginable gift that God has for humanity, Genesis chapter 3 tells us of humanity's choice to spurn God and his gift. And Adam and Eve, they're created to rule over creation with God as a part of God's plan. Instead, they choose to listen to the creation and rebel against God. You see, Genesis chapter 3 is not just a bad choice from humanity. It's rebellion. The first king and the first queen created to rule with the high king, with God himself, instead choose to rebel against him. And as a result, all of creation breaks. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, tell us a little bit, just a few of the results of this rebellion of creation. We see that there is now strife between humanity and the rest of creation. Now there is pain. Now there is conflict in relationships. Now there is meaninglessness and weariness in your work. There's even death itself because of rebellion. And yet... God doesn't give up on his broken, rebellious creation. He doesn't just say, we're just going to start over. We're going to start from scratch. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we've read this a number of times here at Crosswinds, but it is important. It is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's crucial for us understanding the rest of the Bible. God is speaking to the serpent that deceived humanity into rebelling against him. And God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice God's promise here in this verse that one day, There is going to be an offspring that comes from the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent, and that will come at great cost to himself. And over the the rest of the Bible, we see exactly what this looks like in God's plan. He reveals more and more and more of his great rescue plan for humanity. It culminates with the person of Jesus, this long-awaited offspring of the woman. But I want us to just imagine that we are reading the Bible for the first time, 
And we started in Genesis chapter 1. Without any knowledge of what comes next. Or for that matter, imagine that you are Adam and Eve, and you've heard this promise of this offspring of the woman who will one day come and will fix God's broken creation. Without any other knowledge, there would be this expectation that, that the woman's offspring was coming soon. In fact, that's what, what Genesis chapter 3 seems to indicate. Take a look at verse 20. The man called his, name, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So there's the woman, and she's going to, to be the mother of all who live, the offspring. Then you get to, to chapter 4, a few verses later. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. God has promised offspring of the woman, someone who will come and fix the broken creation. And a few verses later, we encounter not just one, but two offspring. And it would be natural for us to hope and even assume that one of these two, either Cain or Abel, will be the ones who set right what went wrong with creation in the garden. But... The effects of Adam's rebellion in, in Genesis chapter 3 are just beginning to be made known. Genesis chapter 4 reveals the wickedness of the human heart for all to see. Now Adam or Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain and Abel make offerings to the Lord. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is rejected. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the reason why. Abel's offering was made in faith. Cain's, by implication, was not. It was merely this perfunctory act of looking the part of being religious. And God, in his grace, after this defiance of God, not worshiping God in his heart, just going through the motions. God in his grace approaches Cain and warns him. And yet rather than listening, Cain chooses to kill his brother, this unfathomable act. And if Adam and Eve reject God in the garden, how much more do we see that from Cain? And in Genesis chapter 4, uh, four verses 17 through 24, we see that things continue to only get worse and worse. Cain is not the chosen one to make everything right. Neither are his offspring. In fact, by the time we get to the seventh descendant of Adam in Cain's life, we see the culmination of human wickedness. Notice these words in verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my vo vo voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
You thought Cain was bad? Look at me, is what Lamech says. The offspring of the woman has not brought healing, not brought restoration. If anything, it's the opposite. How far have God's image bearers fallen? Genesis chapter 6 actually reveals this heart of humanity, God's perspective on us, on it. It gives us insight into God's view of, of his creation, his image bearers. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the hearts of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises a son who will one day make all things right. And as this story unfolds, it is apparent. It is not Cain. It can't be Abel. It's not of any of Cain's descendants. And we're left wondering, will God keep his promise? Has he abandoned us? Is the sin of humanity too great for God to enact his rescue plan? You know, here in Genesis chapter 4, even before we get to, to Seth, we're left with this question that many of us can relate to, one that is found throughout the Bible on the lips of the people of God as they wait upon God to act. How long? How long, O oh Lord, how long must we wait for God to do what he has promised? How long must we wait until God comes through? How long must we wait until God fixes what is broken? How long until God rescues us from this mess? In fact, this is the focus of a number of prayers found throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 13, David, he's facing suffering. He's on the verge of despair. He's left wondering how much longer he can wait for God to intervene, for God to act. He says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Similarly, the psalmist Ethan looks at the state of Israel, looks at God's promises to his people, and he wonders how much more of God's wrath can we endure for our disobedience? Psalm 89, how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? This is a powerful psalm. Because Ethan is saying, God, this is what you promised. You promised steadfast love of old, and yet where I'm living now, it is nowhere to be seen. How long until you do what you promised to do? And those words might sound accusatory to us, but they come from a heart of faith. In fact, they would be right at home in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. God, what you have promised is nowhere to be seen. So how long until you do what you said you would do? 
We would do well as the people of God today to consider how this type of prayer honors God in our own waiting, in our own disconnect between what God has promised and what we are currently experiencing today. Let's say you suffer from chronic pain or illness. What if instead of letting that pain and suffering cause you bitterness, causing you to conclude that God cannot be trusted, you allowed that suffering to fuel your prayers to God to establish his kingdom in his fullness. The second to last verse in the Bible is a prayer for exactly that. It is a prayer that is inspired by the disconnect between what God has promised and the pain that we experience living today. Revelation chapter 22, three simple words, come Lord Jesus. It is a prayer that takes the disconnect of suffering today and uses it as a motivation to pray for Jesus' kingdom to come. What if you let your pain and your suffering far from being a hindrance to trusting God, rather that it would be the motivation for God honoring prayers such as these. Before Seth even steps on the scene, we're left wondering, how long, O Lord? And the scriptures give us permission and the words to vocalize this disconnect in a way that honors God, glorifies Him, rather than casting doubt on His goodness. And that's actually what we see from the life of Seth. When we turn our attention to Seth, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, build the expectancy that God is going to come through for his people. And he does so time and time again, though not in the way that they expect or, or we expect. By the time we're introduced to Seth, we're hopeful, we're hopeful that he, Seth, is the one that God is going to use to rescue a broken creation. Notice the expectancy of Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Let's pause right there. God has appointed. The name Seth means appointed. Notice the word offspring. There's this expectancy. Is this the one? Is Seth the one? And to Seth... Also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, much of Seth's story is like that of his older brothers, and of his father, and of his mother. He lives, and then he dies. That's actually the testimony of the genealogy of Seth's line in Genesis chapter 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. I know there's a lot of questions about the age of life here. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Notice the repetition throughout Genesis chapter 5. The main point, 
of Genesis chapter 5. Starting in verse 3. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, and he died. Seth fathered Enosh, and he died. Enosh fathered Kenan, and he died. Kenan fathered Mahalalel, and he died. Mahalalel fathered Jared, and he died. Jared fathered Enoch, and he died. Enoch fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We'll get back to that in a second. Methuselah fathered Lamech, and he died. Lamech, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, and he died. Romans chapter 5 tells us that death reigns from Adam to Moses. And that's exactly what we see here. Just as with Adam's other son, Cain, people live and they die. With every son that is born, it becomes apparent that this is not the one that God promised. Even with these incredible lifespans here, death is inescapable. No one can escape it. Creation remains broken. And from the outside, it seems as though after creation has spurned God, you look at Genesis chapter 5 and you're left concluding maybe God did the same. Maybe God returned the favor and spurned creation after they turned their back on him. And yet, there is a fundamental difference between Seth and his brother Cain, described in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Take a look at those verses one more time. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. After the tragedy of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have another son. They name him Seth, meaning appointed. And again, the implication of that name is clear. Adam and Eve see him as a gift of hope from God after the grief of Cain and Abel. Maybe this is the appointed one, the one that we have waited for, the one that's going to fix this broken world. And yet that's not God's plan. God has other plans in mind. And it quickly becomes apparent to Adam and Eve and Seth himself He's not the offspring who's going to fix the broken creation. And yet, rather than that leading to despair or questioning God's goodness or the ability of God to do what he has promised and said he would do, what do the people do? It's in verse 26. They begin to call upon the name of the Lord. There are only three things that we can say with confidence about Seth from the testimony of the Bible. But there are three vitally important truths for us. The first one is this. These verses reveal that Seth learned the promises of God from his father, from Adam. That's, that's clear in the implications of this verse, these verses. It's implied in the calling on the name of the Lord of verse 26. How does Seth know the Lord? How does he know what this God is like? How does he know to cry out to this God? The only thing that we can say with confidence from this text is that Adam told him. 
Adam explained it. Adam would have told Seth about God's plans and purposes for humanity in the very beginning. He would have told his son about how God had created them to rule and reign alongside God, to lead all of creation in worship of the true king. He would have told Seth about those amazing days before sin broke creation, about life in the garden with Eve and with God. Imagine Just imagine getting to hear what paradise was like from someone who lived it. And also from the person who broke it. Adam would have told Seth about that awful day when he and Eve chose rebellion against their king rather than trusting in him. About that first time they felt shame. That first time they felt despair. Adam would have told his son Seth about the effects of that rebellion, the brokenness that now existed everywhere. Seth could look, including in the broken shambles of his family. And yet more importantly, he would have told Seth about the mercy of this God. A God who does not give up on his creation, but promises one day to save it. And so Adam, Eve, and Seth begin to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they begin to ask God to do what he had promised. That's the second thing we know of Seth. Seth began to call upon God to come through on his promises. You and I know this by a different name. We call it prayer. For the first time in the Bible, people begin to pray. Seth stands at a turning point in history because at that moment, Seth and his family conclude that while God's promise remains unfulfilled, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that God is not worth trusting. They don't conclude God will do what he will do, and so there's no point in asking him to do something now either. No, they instead see that even though they've rebelled against the king of the universe, they can now boldly approach this sovereign king and ask him to intervene because he has promised to do just that. And significantly, that doesn't stop with Seth. Even as his mother and father taught him of the promises of God, we see that Seth teaches his son to pray as well. Seth does the exact same thing with his son. Genesis 4 makes explicit two responsibilities that Seth takes to heart. To pray for God to intervene in human history and second, to teach his descendants to do the exact same. And we would do well to take both of those things to heart as well. To pray for God to come through as he has said he will and to teach others to do the same. And yet, in spite of all this death that reigns in Genesis chapter 5, we see that's exactly what happens. The seventh from Adam in the line of Seth, in contrast to the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain, is the exact opposite of his distant relative. Lamech is the epitome of evil, and yet Enoch is said to walk with God in a way that no one else had done or has done since. 
And yet God has not brought about this offspring who's going to make all things right. And Seth and his descendants commit themselves to pray so that God would do what he has promised. Do you see how Seth serves as an example for us? His family serves as an example for us of what it means for us to pray? What it means for us to cry out to God? How often do we pray for God to come through on his promises? How often are our prayers rooted in the direct promises that God has made to his people? Here's the astounding thing about Seth and this verse in verse 26. In the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, God has only made one promise at this point. God has promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to fix a broken creation. And yet that one promise motivates this family to pray, to cry out to God, to call on God for millennia to do what he has promised. Now we stand... After the fullness of God's plan of redemption has been fully revealed, we have the entirety of the Bible. God at long last has revealed his plan to bring all people who place faith and trust in him, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, into his family forever. We have countless promises in Scripture that are at our disposal to use as the fuel for a life of prayer. Prayer at its core, is incredibly simple. And it's the overarching message of Seth's life here. It is simply to ask God to come through on his promises. That's it. To ask God to come through on his promises. That's his legacy. That's the legacy of his descendants. Not just his descendants, but anyone who would cry out to God with prayer that is rooted in the scriptures, asking God to do what he has said he will do. And yet you might find yourself asking, well, what exactly does that look like? Let's just consider two brief implications of what it means for us to call upon the name of the Lord today. First one is this, the heart that calls on the name of the Lord trusts God in the gap between our experience and God's promises. Let me say that again. The heart that calls on the name of the Lord trusts God in the gap between what we experience and what God has promised. This is why we pray. This is why we have to pray. We call out to God to remember his promises because there is this very real gap between what God has promised to us and the life that we experience. Everywhere we turn, we see evidence of this. People get sick and die. Relationships are destroyed. Jobs are lost for no apparent reason. It's tough to make ends meet. Hate runs rampant in our world. And to call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize that this is not the way God intended for things to be and to cry out to him to change it. But if we stop there, that's the beginning steps toward the prosperity gospel. You see, a heart that calls upon the name of the Lord doesn't just recognize this gap and ask God to fix it. 
It also declares a resolute trust in God no matter what comes next. No matter what our present experiences may say. It recognizes that many of the promises that God has made have come in part and they will not be come in they will not come in full until Christ returns and establishes his forever kingdom. It is a mindset of trust like the men and women of faith described in Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For the people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they are thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The heart that calls out to God does so because God called out first. And it responds by trusting that God is going to fulfill his promises in that better country. It responds to God with a heart that delights in him and his promises. And that serves as the foundation for all of our prayers. So that's the first way that we, we call upon the name of the Lord today. The second thing is this, the heart that calls on the name of the Lord is motivated by its powerlessness to bridge that gap. There's this gap between God, what God has said he will do and what we experience. And if you're going to be someone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it starts with a recognition of just how powerless you are. When our prayers become increasingly concerned with the promises of God in the scriptures, we become increasingly aware of how powerless we are to bridge that gap. I love this quote from Paul Miller in his very helpful book, A Pray in Life. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. If you want to live a life of prayer, it starts by learning just how desperate you are. Prayer starts by recognizing how powerless you are to accomplish virtually anything of lasting value in your life. It's particularly important for us in today's culture. The last 100 years of technological advancements, specifically the last 40 years, we as a society, as people, have become diluted with our own power. Diseases that virtually killed everyone 100 years ago are now, in essence, wiped out. The dawn of refrigeration means that not only do we no longer have to pray for our daily bread, but we don't have to pray for our food the rest of the month. Just yesterday, my wife and I were having a conversation about some meat that was in our refrigerator and had been for a week or two. Is it still good to eat? Yeah, it's still good to eat. That would not have been the case 100 years ago. Thank God for refrigeration. Deadly heat may still be dangerous, but can easily be avoided with air conditioning, whether that is in your own home or in a public space. 
With the advent of newer and newer technologies, we have deluded ourselves into doing exactly what Adam and Eve first attempted in the garden, to make ourselves gods. How different is that than a heart that calls upon the Lord Jesus to cry out to Jesus, to not be self-sufficient, to not be drunk with our own sense of power, but instead the heart of a child. There's a, a book that I found helpful called Calling on the Name of the Lord. The author says this about our helplessness in prayer. He says this, Once we realize that God's agenda for us is nothing less than transformation into the likeness of Jesus, and that God is passionate about enabling us to live wholeheartedly for Him every day, every day for our whole lives, then our need to pray and the kinds of things we need to pray for become rather obvious. If we are asked to give a talk or teach a Sunday school class, or to lead a small group, to meet, to pray with someone else, to visit someone who is sick. Can we do those things? Yes, we can. We can cut out the craft, we can prepare the lesson, we can read the passage, we can make the coffee, we can get into the car and drive to the hospital. These are all things that we can do competently without being thrown into a blind panic. But can we do the work of God in our lives or in anyone else's? You must be joking desperation comes when we see the massive scope of God's plan for us and our world, when we see our inability to do anything that makes difference to ourselves or our world, when we see how much, God, how much we need God to change us by His Spirit and to change other people by His Spirit. When we see that, then we will start to pray and keep praying. The heart that calls on the Lord recognizes just how powerless it is to bring about the things that, that truly matter. And that powerlessness drives us to pray. If you don't feel that powerlessness, then maybe you and I need to open our eyes to the task that is before this. This was abundantly apparent to me um, about a month ago. I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. And Moses tells them this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? It's not a great motivational speech. But what he's doing there is revealing to them, reminding them of the task that is before them. It is impossible. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? The task that God has called you to is beyond you. You cannot hope to accomplish it in your own strength. But notice Moses' next words. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. The task that God has asked of you is impossible, but God does the impossible. And he regularly has made promises to you, and you can, you can rest assured that he will do what he has promised. The same thing is true for us standing on this side of the cross. God calls us to make disciples of all nations Notice Paul's words about his calling and describing what God has called him to at the beginning of Romans. He's called to this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
That's an impossible task. Paul can't do that on his own. No one can do that unless God is at work. And when we pray, we ask God to intervene and do what only he can do. Prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, acknowledges that there is this gap between what God has promised and our experiences and knows, you know what, God, I cannot bridge that gap. Only you can, so come and work. The life of Seth is a life rooted in the promises of God. It's a life committed to crying out to God to do exactly what he has said that he would do. Seth is a broken vessel in need of grace like the rest of us. He plays a small role in the story of the Bible, and yet he prays. And he establishes a legacy of prayer that serves as the framework for each of us as we pray today as well. In fact, if we were to just take one thing from the life of Seth, I think it would be just that in any and every season. In any and every season, cry out to God to keep his promises. Cry out to God to keep his promises. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask him to be at work. Ask him to do what he has said he will do. Ask him to do what only he can do in any and every season. Cry out to God to keep his promises. And you can do that because he is trustworthy. In fact, one of the greatest assurances that we have as the people of God, while we're crying out to God for the fulfillment of those promises, one of our greatest assurances is God's track record. He is completely trustworthy. Every single promise of God falls into one, or two, one of two categories. It's either a promise that has already been kept or a promise that he will one day keep. That's it. There's no other category. The psalmist actually says as much. Consider the words of Psalm 119. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. God has been proven trustworthy time and time and time and time again. History is on our side. So when there is a gap between what he has said he will do and the life you currently experience, don't lose heart. Cry out to God to keep those promises, just like Seth, just like his descendants. Cry out, call out. Call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. That you have promised and have made promises to us that you revealed to us so we know what you will do. Thank you. 
God, we ask that you would help us to see the powerlessness of each and every one of us for the task that you have set before us. The task of heart transformation. Of seeing the nations respond to the gospel. Who is up for such a task? Help us to run to you so that you will work, confident that you will be at work for your glory and the spread of your name to the ends of the earth. It's in that glorious name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.